Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast, we have part 50 in our series on the Gospel of John. Today's message is called The Seeds of Betrayal. We're going to be looking at how Judas came to betray Jesus and kind of the temptations that face all of us as Christians. And and I think as we look at this, uh, you're going to realize that some of these temptations are not quite as obvious as you might think uh, because they're so ingrained in our cultural worldview as modern Americans. So, some good stuff here. Uh, We've got a newcomer's lunch next Sunday after church, so after the second service. So, for those who are new who want to get to know us, we'll take you out to lunch. Otherwise, let's head to the talk. North Shore Vineyard Church, downtown Covington. Thanks for listening. So I'm going to, to start out in, in John chapter 13, verse, 9, uh, verse 21. Now, at just, a, just a recap of previously on the Gospel of John. Uh, last week, we, were, we, we talked about Jesus washing the, the, the feet of his disciples. And this was during a meal. And he, uh, he gets up in the middle of the meal and he begins to uh, wash their feet. And it, it was just a, a scandalous act because Jesus was doing something that even the Jewish people didn't do. They didn't wash each other's feet. That was reserved for the Gentile slaves. It was just like the nastiest, gross job that you could do in their world. And Jesus was doing it. And he gets done and he says, you ought to do this for one another. So it's just an intensely intimate moment between Jesus and his disciples. And that's where we kind of pick up this story. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know of which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter mentioned, motioned to the disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he said, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him, entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, do it quickly. No one at that meal understood why Jesus said this to him, since Judas had had charge of the money. Some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. So this is, this is uh, as I've said in previous weeks, this is the last night before Jesus gets, goes to the cross. And so it's a, very, um, it's a very heavy time for Jesus. And he's spending it, this is kind of the moment where it's kind of his last time to be with the disciples and say something to them and share something with them before he actually goes to the cross. And in, this, in the midst of this very intimate moment, we also see like one of the most hurtful things that, that Jesus faces because one of his very own, someone who's been there from the beginning with him, who has been there when he fed the 5,000, when he walked on water, when he healed the leper, when he uh, uh, reached out to the Samaritan woman. He's been there through it all, and yet, even by being around Jesus and all of that, he's going to betray him. And, and what we see here is that Jesus... Jesus is troubled. This is one of three instances that we see so far in the Gospel of John where it says Jesus was troubled. The first time was when Jesus uh, comes to the grave of Lazarus. And, and Jesus is troubled. 
He's troubled to see what death has done. He's, he's grieving. He's moved with compassion, and he calls Lazarus from the dead. The second time was Jesus, uh, shortly after that, Jesus says, I'm troubled because my hour is approaching. My time is coming. He saw the cross was coming, and he, and he knew it was going to be very hard. But he said, I'm, I'm not going to pray to be delivered from this, for this is why I came. And then the third time we see that Jesus is troubled is right here, and he's troubled in a very real way, because he feels betrayed. Because he knows one of his friends is going to betray him. Now, I've heard people sometimes try to make the case, there have been certain theologians, theologians, theologians who have tried to make the case that, that Judas was just damned from the start. He was, just, he was chosen to betray God. And I don't think that's the way God works. I don't think that... that that God created Judas to betray Jesus. I don't think that was, I think Jesus would have been betrayed by somebody else if it wasn't Judas. Um, I think Jesus loved Judas, and I think Judas was, was a, a close friend. And I think that's what made the betrayal hurt that much more. Because when, when Jesus announces to, to John that it was Judas... Uh, nobody saw it coming. When Jesus says, one of you betray, will betray me, nobody's like going, oh, I bet it's Judas. They're probably actually going, I bet it's Thomas. Doubting Thomas, right? Uh, no, it's not obvious to anybody in that room that it's going to be Judas betraying Jesus. They all start going, is it me? Or, or is it, you know, who is it? And so Peter looks over to um, John and says, John, why don't you ask Jesus? Now, I, I want to briefly just set up what the table scene was like. You may have seen Leonardo da Vinci's uh, The Lord's Supper thing, that, that painting, famous painting. That's not really what it would have looked like very much because they didn't sit at tables the way that we sit at tables with chairs, you know, upright. Ba basically, tables in that time of the world, they were about a foot off the ground. And you, I, I love this. I want to get one for my own house because this sounds kind of nice. You would actually you know, lay on the ground on a, on a pillow with your, you know, elbow on a pillow, and you just shovel food into your mouth with your right hand. And so you can see that people laying all around the table, they would be kind of staggered. And so John, uh, the guy who wrote the jo Gospel of John, at this time, he was probably a teenager of about 18 or 19 years old, and, he, and he's laying close to Jesus' chest. That's where his head is. And I think this is, 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 is not just... Um, a literal picture, but, but this is symbolic of, of, of John because John was always listening for the heart of Jesus. There's nobody in the New Testament that wrote more about the love of God than John. Even John at an old age when he's exiled to Patmos, when he's writing his epistles, he, can't, he, he just keeps talking about love God, the love of God, the love of God. And in this spot, John's, John's head is up near the, the, the uh, chest of Jesus and Peter says, ask him who's going to betray him. I think it was a whisper because the answer doesn't seem to get out there to everybody. It's, it's as if Jesus just tells John when he asks him, the one whom I dip the bread in the, in, in the bowl and, and hand it to them. I didn't know this until I was studying for this passage this week that in, in that time of the world, in that culture, if you wanted to honor a guest, if you wanted to show a special... Uh, uh, give special honor to, honor to one of your guests, you would dip a piece of bread in the bowl and hand it to him. That was a symbol of, I 
honor you. I, I respect you. I welcome you. And I think in this instance, I think what Jesus is doing, he's offering, offering Judas one last chance, man. Judas, I love you. You ain't got to do this. Why don't you come to the light? Because Jesus does what he always does. He loves his enemies. He blesses those. He, his heart is always for reconciliation, always for love. And he gives this piece of bread to Judas, but it, we see at that moment that it says that Satan entered him. Now, there's a couple of ways you can go with this Satan entering into him aspect. Uh, I don't know if it was full-on demonic possession the way we see in certain, you know, like particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus would cast out demons. Uh, I suspect that, that that's probably not what's going on here. The word that's translated Satan in our Bible just means the adversary. We, we often think it's like the, the proper name of the devil, like my name is... Satan, P. Beelzebub, and, uh, you know, and his business cards. But, but, but Satan really just means the adversary, the accuser, the one who opposes God. And I kind of suspect what's actually going on in this, in this situation is not like full-on demonic possession. I think he has, at this point, he's crossed the line. He says, I'm going to oppose Jesus. I'm going to be the adversary. Now, he certainly, uh, I'm I'm not saying there's no spiritual component there. there, There's certainly lots of spiritual component there. He's aligning with the forces of darkness that want to uh, crucify Jesus. And then after this, Jesus says, what you're about to do, do it quickly. Now, again, we see that none of the disciples even realize what's going on. Jesus told them, what you're about to do. Jesus is saying, if you're going to betray me, Get it over with. Let's be done with this thing. The rest of the disciples think, oh, he's going out to give to the poor or set up preparations for the festivals. Again, I just want to paint this picture that the disciples don't see Judas. He's not like the rebellious guy that that you can pick out of a crowd. Oh, that's the betrayer. He's a normal disciple of Jesus. And this is where I want to say that this is where it gets very sobering. For us as Christians, this is where this story really has some teeth in our, in our world here 2,000 years later. Because it is possible for you to be around Jesus, for you to see miracles, healings. Uh, it's possible for you to read your Bible every day and show up and serve in church and listen to Christian radio and quote scriptures and know theology back and forth and still end up betraying Jesus. It's possible. It's very possible. I mean, can you imagine being around Jesus, God incarnate, and seeing him feed the 5,000 and heal lepers and raise people from the dead and still betray him? It's possible. It's possible. And so what I want to spend the rest of the time today looking at is how did Judas end up here? I don't think he started out going... I want, to find, I want to find God's anointed one and then turn him in. I think when Judas became a disciple of Jesus, he bought in like everybody. So how did he end up actually opposing the Messiah? How did he end up being anti-Christ? Well, there's a couple of explanations that I want to look at today. The most popular one in church history has been that, that Judas sold Jesus out because of his love for money. He loved money. And we, we see that even in the Gospel of John, when we go back 
A couple of chapters, we see that when Mary was anointing the feet of Jesus was this costly perfume that was probably one year's salary. Judas is going, why is she wasting this perfume on Jesus? You know, we could, we could have sold this and given it to the poor. And he sounds so noble, but John puts a little editorial comment in there says that Judas didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was skimming off the top. <laughs> He was, he was taking from, the, Judas was the guy who took care of the money for the 12 disciples. They, 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 had, a, they had to support their ministry. And so G, Judas watched over their money, but he was pocketing some of the proceeds for himself. The Apostle Paul, along with, with many other writers in the New Testament, gives us a sober warning when it comes to money. Money is something that we all need. And money itself isn't evil, okay? Money is not bad. Uh, but money, probably more than anything else out there, has an ability to just corrupt people. Uh, I've got friends on the mission field who, uh, they said in the last 15, 20 years since Christian broadcasting stuff has started to go into uh, much of Africa and, and other parts of the world where, where there's lots of missionaries, uh, it's ruining what the church is doing because it's infecting, it's infecting the local missions, I mean the local populations with this uh, prosperity gospel stuff. And now you've got pastors that are getting up there. I had a friend of mine who's in, in Kenya. She, she works, she's worked in Kenya for years. And one of her friends was just a great pastor for years. And then all of a sudden they start buying into this stuff. And he gets up every week and he starts beating up his congregation for why he doesn't drive a Mercedes and the pastor down the road does. But it's been because this false uh, prosperity gospel has gotten into the thing. And now people are loving money. She actually brought me a, a, an article from the Nairobi, Kenya newspaper that said that pastoring is the most lucrative career option in Kenya. This is the regular newspaper. People are going into that for a good career now. Paul says in, in, in 1 Timothy 6.10, he says, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from their faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Some people, because they love money, they actually end up wandering from the faith. How, how could that be? Well, it's really easy. I've done it a few times. I'm still tempted to do it quite often. You like what money does, right? You got that steady paycheck coming in. You don't have to trust God that much. It's, it's easy to like what money gets you. Maybe it gets you status. Maybe it gets you stuff. Maybe you can keep up with the Joneses. But you end up wandering from the faith. Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 24. He says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't. They're diametrically opposed. We need money, but we can't serve money. And if you start serving money, you're going to neglect your relationship with God. But if you start serving God, it puts money in, in, a, in a place of, of, it keeps it in check. That's one reason, you know, we pass the offering basket around here each week. And partly that's because we need, you know, we, we survive as a church based on your charitable contributions. But the other thing is, it's part of your Christian life. It, if you want to keep the love of money in check, learn how to give on a regular basis. Give consistently. 
Take a portion of your income and give it. Let go of it. That's hard to do. And it seems like to me, the, the more money you get, the harder it gets. <laughs> it just seems backwards. I found when, when I was barely, when I wasn't even making above the poverty line, it was a lot easier to give. And it's like just starting to get a little bit more money than that. Uh, I don't want to let go. One of the best disciplines in your life is to, to learn how to give a portion of your income on a regular basis to let go of it. To trust God and say, God, I'm going to live on the rest. Uh, that we keep that idolatry of money in check that way. You can sure as enough tell when you are beginning to look at money as a God, as your source, when you start getting stingy. That's a good indicator. When you start to hold on to all your stuff, your money, your resources, and you're not going to let any of it go, that's a sure sign that you are starting to look at money as, as an idol. You're starting to love it too much. You need to keep it in check. You know, this on, on Friday, we, we celebrated uh, our, our little uh, family, um, I don't know what you call it. It's a, it's, a, it's a little family ritual that we instituted a few years ago. It was our third annual God Takes Care of Us Day. And many of you, probably most of you in here, were not going to our church back at the time. But, but back in 2009, we felt the call to plant this church. And it was scary. I got to tell you, when... when you know, when you're going to start a church and you don't even know who's going to show up and you're leaving the security of one job and going out, it's scary. And it wasn't just scary for me. I mean, I was scared because I had a regular paycheck coming in. I had health, health insurance and benefits and all that kind of stuff. And we loved our church family, but it was scary for my kids. My daughter, all of her friends were on the South Shore, and, and there was one night that, that we got together, we had a little family meeting, and she was crying, and she's like, I don't want to leave all my friends, and, and I read that passage that we read this morning about from Matthew, don't worry about where you're going to live, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, but seek first the kingdom of God. And I told my daughter Tevia, I said, Tevia, if you can get anything from us as parents, I want you to know that seeking first the kingdom of God is worth it. God has always taken care of us, always. I mean, sometimes, sometimes things were really tight. Sometimes, you know, sometimes we didn't have cable TV. We still don't. Uh, sometimes we, we didn't have a lot of what we wanted. But God always has taken care of us. Always. And it's worth it to seek after his kingdom. It's worth it. And it was one of the best meetings that we'd had in our life. You know, kind of a family meeting. It was just a really special time. Everybody's crying and stuff. But I didn't know how that was actually going to play out. You know, I mean, that, I, was, I was holding on to those passages. And we, we had our first weekend service as a church back in uh, January of 2010. And we had about 25 people, I think. And uh, within six months, I had a heart attack. I was 37 years old. I didn't know I had, I wasn't expecting a heart attack to happen. I mean, I kind of. I was more afraid of other things. And I had this thing called a widow-maker heart attack, and most people are dead in about five minutes from this. But I ended up going to the hospital, drove myself, which was stupid, because uh, I didn't want to pay for an ambulance. Or it took me a lot to even go to the hospital because I knew walking in the door it was going to cost a 1000 bucks. you know, it, no matter what they did. We didn't have health insurance at the time, even though I'd had it for years before then. Um, and, and so... That was a real big barrier. I could definitely identify with, with, with those kinds of issues in our culture when you, when you don't have insurance and you've you got something wrong. I, I definitely get it. 
And um, I went to the hospital. I didn't know what was really going on with me. I felt like, man, something's, something's, something's wrong. Turns out I had a 99% blockage in my heart. And uh, anyway, I got a, a stellar cardiologist, one of the best, and he put a stent in, and I survived. And I was happy to be alive because uh, it, was, it was a close brush with death. And this was kind of a crazy thing because this was only six months into doing our weekend services. Our church has, was just barely meeting our budget for the first time. And uh, about a month later, I get the bill from the hospital. I, the whole time I was in the hospital, I'm, because I didn't have insurance, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, uh, how much is this going to cost? How much are they going to charge for this? I, I didn't realize they charged $15 for an ibuprofen. Um, but my estimate of what it was going to cost was a little off. I get the bill, and it was close to $100,000. Now, we'd spent years trying to get out of debt and live, you know, live financially free and all that stuff, and then all of a sudden I'm like, God, if I was going to have a heart attack, why didn't you let me have it six months ago when I had health insurance? <laughs> Like, we are never going to be able to pay this off. We're still paying student loans, for God's sake. <laughs> but God kept calling me back to that verse from Matthew chapter 6. Seek first the kingdom of God. Don't worry about this. Actually, Dina, you know, about the time I was ready to pour a good stiff drink, uh, Dina was like, there's, no, <laughs> there's no, no need to get worried. I mean, if this was a couple of thousand bucks, we could get worried. But this is so far beyond anything we could do. Like, <laughs> it wasn't exactly faith. It was just like, why even bother getting worried about this? Like, this, this is just like, there's no way we could ever pay this. And I'm like, okay, you're right. Um, and so, <laughs> so I, I talked to a, a financial counselor there at the at the hospital, and she said, look, you can apply for a program. The the, the hospital will likely write off part of your bill. And I was like, okay. So she gave me the stuff. I filled out all the paperwork. And then I spent a whole day, one day, just writing this letter. It was good. I, I, I was, it was some of my best writing ever. I just led him into our family story. You know, both of our kids had been born there and la, la, la. And I bring all that stuff up to the hospital. Because in my mind, I imagined that there was some committee that, that would meet to look at claims like this. And I imagine them reading my story and getting teary-eyed and going, <laughs> we need to help this guy out. Um, but when I actually handed in my, my forms and the letter, the lady, she looks at the letter, she goes, wow, this is really good writing. I was like, I know. <laughs> she said, uh, that's really good, but like, it's really just a computer program. They just crunch your numbers and figure out like how much they're going to pay. I was like, so she said, according to, our, according to what I think, that they'll probably write off about I mean, uh, $40,000 worth. I was like, that's good. It's, we're still never going to pay it off. <laughs> we're still looking at, at, at really hard times ahead. And anyway, long story short, uh, a couple of weeks later, I get a call from, from this lady at the hospital. She says, look, um, I never see this happen, but the hospital has agreed to write off 100% of your bill. She didn't even tell me if they read my letter. <laughs> but I just, at that moment, I was just, I was like, I, I felt like I had cheated death and won the lottery. 
I felt like the, the, the most blessed person alive. And I, and, but part of it was like, I, I didn't know what to do at that point. Like, who do I even thank? How do I express gratitude? And I felt God put it on my heart that, that you know, in the Old Testament, they, they were required to celebrate festivals like Passover. And, and these festivals actually commemorated a moment when God uh, heard their cr- cries. So Passover was when God heard their cries and delivered them from slavery. And I felt like God put it on my heart to do something like that. And so that night, I got together with my family, and, and we, we, we started our first ever God Takes Care of Us Day. And uh, on Friday evening this week, we celebrated uh, the third anniversary of that, uh, our third God Takes Care of Us Day. And we sat around the dinner table, and we just reflected over the initial time when God came through and when he saved my life and when he canceled the debt. And then we also looked back over this last year and we remembered together all the ways that God has taken care of us, all the ways that he's re- intervened. And, you know, actually before we did this, this God Takes Care of Us Day, I was like, you know, sometimes you're just not aware of it until you start talking. It's, there's something when we begin sharing our hearts with each other, when we begin recognizing God together. That, that when I walked away from that meal, it's just like we, we got together as a family. We prayed for each other. And, you know, we were all getting teary-eyed by the end of it. And it was just the sweet presence of Jesus. And I got to tell you, the, the power of just remembering how God has taken care of us, it reorients us to the things of this world. Because all of a sudden, when, when we get back to our money, it's like, eh, we can let go of it. Why? Because money's not our king. It's not our God. Money doesn't take care of us. Money's a tool that takes care of us, but God takes care of us. Yes, he uses my job. Yes, he uses money. But when we get it in its proper perspective, we, we, we're, we're free to actually use money to, to, to help actually be a blessing to other people. It doesn't hold on to us. But whenever we make money a God, we will end up betraying Jesus. We'll end up opposing the purposes of God. And, and I got to tell you, it's snaky. <laughs> it's, it, it's amazing how much the love of money can just slowly get into us. A lot of times we think it's just, some, it's just a rich person's disease, right? We think of the greedy 1% people on Wall Street, right? But, but there's nobody immune to this. Whether you're poor, rich, middle class, lower middle class, upper middle class, every one of us in here is susceptible to the idolatry of money. Every last one of us. We've got to keep that thing in check because otherwise we will end up opposing the purposes of God. So that's, that's one aspect of the Judas story. That's one, one of the seeds of betrayal was his love for money. But the last thing that I want to look at is another theory, which I think is, is quite plausible. This is actually held by many people in the, Greek, uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, it's a little bit more popular over there. Um, which is about a third of the Christians in the world, by the way. Judas, we know his surname was Iscariot. And Iscariot actually comes from the Greek word Sakari. And Sakari actually was the name of a group of people called the Dagger Men. These were like hyper-patriotic uh, people who wanted to overthrow the government. They wanted to kick Rome out. They were called the dagger men because they would walk around with these daggers underneath their cloaks. And they were ready at any moment to stab a Roman authority when they got the chance. They, they definitely had no problem with violence. 
We know that in Jesus' inner circle of 12 disciples, one of them was a zealot, Simon the Zealot, and that would have been somebody who was trying to overthrow the government. But the Sicarii, they were a little bit more devious. You can actually look at uh, the historian Josephus actually writes how in 66 A.D., uh, the Sicarii infiltrated Jerusalem and they destroyed the food supply. Why? Because they hated the Jerusalem? No, they were trying to instigate a war. They figured if the Jewish people ran out of food, they would revolt against the Romans. They, that's the kind of people that they were. And so one theory is that, that and, and I, I believe this, that Judas, it wasn't that he didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. I don't even think Judas was trying to betray Jesus. I believe that Jesus didn't meet his expectations of what he thought the Messiah would look like. And so Jesus, Judas was actually trying to force Jesus into a situation where he would step out and be the Messiah that they wanted. Matthew 16, 15 through 26, there's a story where Jesus is, is talking with his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am out there? What's my reputation in the community? Some people say that you're... You're John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Some people say you're Elijah. And then Jesus says, well, who do you think that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says to, to Jesus, he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to Peter, he says, Peter, you are blessed because flesh and blood, your own mind didn't think this up. This has been revealed to you by my Father in heaven. And upon this rock, this revelation that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of Hades won't prevail against it. So in one moment, Peter is getting praised by Jesus. You got the right answer. But two verses later, we see Jesus being called Satan. Um, yeah, Peter being called Satan, not Jesus. Thank you. <laughs> Verse 21, it says, From that time be Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Little rabbit trail here. Don't rebuke God, okay? <laughs> he began to rebuke him, saying, Never, Lord! This shall never happen to you! And Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan! You are a stumbling block to me, and you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I think this is a great example of what we see going on with Judas. At one moment, Peter is getting the revelation from God that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the king who's going to set things right. But two verses later, he's being called Satan. How do you go from <laughs> hearing from God to being Satan? Well, the problem is that, G that, that, that Peter as with all the other disciples, couldn't put their mind around the type of Messiah that Jesus was going to be. Jesus didn't come to, to force people to proclaim that he was Lord. He didn't come in with a sword or armies or anything like that. He came in humble love. And that's the way the kingdom of God always comes. It doesn't come at the end of a sword. It comes in humble love. It looks like Jesus. See, I think what was going on with Judas, I think that, that point where, where we see that Judas, uh, the, the spirit of Satan, in, uh, that Satan enters into him, I think it's just like what we see with Peter. He believes that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's not acting like the right kind of Messiah. I suspect 
that when Jesus began to wash people's feet, it was the last straw for Judas. You are not acting presidential. You're not acting like a king. You can't take the lowest position and do the lowest job. That's not the way the Messiah is going to be. And he ends up opposing what Jesus is really like. I want to admit something today that I'm, I'm kind of ashamed of. It was back in 2003. I, I remember the night. It was a Tuesday night, I believe. Uh, I was leading my first alpha table at the vineyard on the South Shore. And uh, that night I got home to, to watch TV and it was the night that that America declared war on Iraq. And it was the shock and awe. Y'all remember that? And, and we saw these, these videos of these precision-guided cruise missiles as they just obliterated uh, downtown Baghdad. And I remember, and I'm ashamed to say, that watching that, I just felt kind of, yeah, we're getting, we're getting the bad guys. And that night, I even the thought even occurred to me that this is going to be a great day for the church. Because as soon as we get rid of this dictator, then we'll be able to send in Christian missionaries and, and start planting churches and showing people what Jesus is like. I'm embarrassed of that right now because, you know, I, I, have, to, I have to say that over the years, I've had to repent for some of my beliefs along those lines as I look at Jesus. Because I'm now convinced that the kingdom of God never comes at the end of a sword. It never comes through bombs or missiles or tanks or guns. It always comes through humble love. Always. It always looks like Jesus. See, what, 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 what Judas had, he was hyper-patriotic. Even probably like one of the other, you know, Simon the Zealot. He, he had ideas about the, how, how, how the Messiah would look. He tried to fit Jesus, the Messiah, into his own agenda, his own political ideology. Jesus won't fit in your political ideology. He won't. Rather, we need to take our agendas, our ideologies, and submit them before the king. I've got my own political views. It's fine to have political views. But I treat my politics the way I treat my money. <laughs> it's a necessary evil. At the end of the day, I'm a monarchist. I'm not a Republican or a Democrat or a Tea Party or Libertarian. I'm a monarchist. I believe that there's one king. And he needs to rule. And, and, and I look for that day when his kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. The truth is, I think one of the most destructive things that's happened in the church in America in the last few decades is how much the church has intertwined with the politics of American nationalism. It's, it's been destructive. You know, there are people outside the church who think that unless they believe certain political things, they can't be a Christian. I'm not talking about bad political things either. I mean, but I, I mean, you can take an issue like abortion. I'm against abortion. I don't think it's right. But I've seen some Christians opposing abortion who look more like Satan <laughs> than they do look like Jesus. So you can have, I'm not talking about even having bad morality, you know. You can believe right things in a wrong way, in a way that, that, that actually opposes Jesus. And I think that's one of the most destructive things that's happened in our world. People outside the church think that to be a Christian in America, you have to have certain political ideas. You have to have certain patriotic ideas. That's mixing. That's trying to fit Jesus 
into our American political agendas rather than submitting them to Christ. What's more is I've got, uh, I've got many friends who work among Muslims in Muslim countries. You know that the many Muslims that are coming to Christ now, they won't call themselves Christians. They call themselves Jesus followers. They won't call themselves Christians. Why? Because that word, the very word Christian in the Muslim world, what it means to them is American nationalism. It means drones. It means wars. It means uh, all the things that, 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 that's what it means to them. Is that because that's what it actually means? No. But that's what it's come to mean because we have, we have merged these things together. And I don't think that's any different from what we see going on in the New Testament. Please listen to this. Please listen. And it, it, the, the, the people who wanted Jesus dead were not the pagan Romans. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't the people who were just drinking and smoking and doing drugs and sleeping around. It wasn't them. It was the religious people who knew the Bible better than anybody. They were the ones who wanted to kill Jesus. And this ought to be sobering to us. It ought to be sobering. It ought to wake us up. We ought to realize that, that when it comes to our political things, our patriotism, we... <laughs> We got to hold that stuff in a very different way. I mean, I know I get teary eyed when I hear I'm proud to be an American. I don't really. <laughs> I wish they'd find a new song. But you know, when I hear patriotic music and watch fireworks and eat apple pie, I get those same feelings that all Americans get. I'm, you know, I'm, I, I love that. I, I, there are things about this country I love. But you know, I don't pledge my allegiance to this country. I don't. My allegiance is to Jesus. It's to Jesus. He's the king. Because I know that if I start mixing those th two things together, if I, start holding my, if I start putting my hope in the Republicans or the Democrats or Obama or Jindal or the health care system, if I start putting my hope in those things, it ain't going to work. That's not what I'm building my life on. My life is upon the rock that is Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting that even after Jesus has, has risen from the dead, his disciples still don't get it. They still don't get it because they start asking, okay, well, when are you going to restore the kingdom? <laughs> when are you going to restore? They are still thinking in nationalistic terms. After Jesus has defeated death, Risen from the grave, they're like, okay, okay, now you're going to be the Messiah that we want. Now you're going to kick butt and, 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 and destroy the Romans. Jesus' kingdom does not come that way. There's a, difference, there, there's a difference between Judas Christianity and Jesus Christianity. You can tell the difference. Why? Because Jesus Christianity looks like Jesus. Looks like Jesus. It's humble. It's filled with love. Judas Christianity is, is, is the Christianity we got with Constantine in the 3rd century when Christians first started killing each other with the sword. And the world has never recovered since then. I believe that, that there's, that's one of the biggest ways that we will end up betraying Jesus because that's the biggest way Jesus was actually betrayed in, in, in the New Testament. It wasn't, it, it wasn't from the outsiders. It was from the religious 
that, that had their own political motivations. We need to realize our tendency to do that. Our tendency to move Jesus into our agenda. Our tendency to baptize our own agenda into Christ rather than lay our agenda down at the feet of Jesus and say, you be the king. You empower me to love and serve and be like you. So at the end of the day, when we're involved in politics, I'm not saying don't be involved in politics. Be involved with politics. Spend money. Those things aren't evil or all that evil. Uh, But do it from the perspective of a follower of King Jesus. Why don't you stand? I'm about to preach. You know, I, I, I said this, that, that 10 years ago, or 2003, 11 years ago, I, I really had some ideas that I've had to repent of. I really have. And it wasn't, just the, it wasn't just on some of those things about the war and stuff. It's been a lot of things in my thinking. I've had to hold it up to Jesus and say, this doesn't look like you, Jesus. And that repentance has been a long time. You know, it's been a process, and I'm continually learning how to change my thinking. I just asked today, I, I, know, I know maybe some of the things I said, maybe they've offended you. I don't know. But I say, just, just, just look at Jesus and compare your ideas to Jesus. Just do that. And where they don't match up, submit them before the Lord. Let me pray for you. And me too. Spirit of God, we pray that you would search our hearts and know us, God, that you would show us anything that that is contrary to you, God. Well, we just give you permission to mess with our our, our worldview, God. We give you permission to, to, uh, to challenge our political ideologies, our patriotism, our nationalism. We we give you uh, we give you permission to do that, God. We thank you for the blessings that we have in, in, in this country. But Lord, we, we, we just admit that, that our sufficiency doesn't come from this government. It comes from you, Lord. That you are our king. And that our lives are in your hands, God. And we, as people, commit to living as your servants, your children, your disciples. Lord, let there be nothing in our heart that betrays you or turns against you. Let there be nothing... That, that, that opposes the purposes of Jesus. And Lord, for us as a church here, I pray that when the folks outside these doors, the folks in our community see the people of North Shore Vineyard, they would say, truly, this is a group of humble love. They look like Jesus. Let that be true in us, Lord. By your grace and by your mercy, Lord. Amen. I'm going to invite some of our prayer team people up here to, to, to hang around and pray with you. If you'd like somebody to pray with you, just stick around and we'd love to pray with you. God bless. Go Saints.